everybody, Brian here from Franchise Simply with another Franchise Radio Show, bringing you all the good franchising juice for everyone in our sector, um, or anyone contemplating franchising. So we're here to share ideas, innovations, and introduce you to some really knowledgeable people with some interesting things to say. And the people I talk to who, who follow these shows regularly, and we've got a lot, I must say, who do a bit of traveling in their car, and they all say from every show they listen to, they pick up at least one thing. Well, I think some of you better have your notebooks there because... I guarantee today you'll pick up more. Today's uh, radio show is called The Subscription Model. It's called uh, A Franchise First with Rhiannon Simcock. She's from James Home Services, and I have a bit of history there myself. I worked with them to a small degree some years ago, in actual fact, under different ownership with a very different structure. But Rhiannon is an experienced leader and solutionist, I suppose you'd say. She really is an entrepreneur, and she has a philosophy that you push boundaries even in the most established business models. And when I bumped into her at the recent franchise convention, well, probably six or seven months ago now, I said, I must talk to this woman because uh, she's got a lot to say. And I was really fascinated. So she's actually CEO of James Home Services Australia. Um, she conceptualized and has led the development and implementation of Australia's first subscription model to business ownership. It's called or <laughs> termed as the Netflix of franchising. I love it. So it's revolution, revolutionizing business ownership in Australia, but also the model is something that's fascinating people in anywhere in the world, I believe. And uh, I do understand that this subscription model is a world first. So congratulations. That's what I call pushing the boundaries as an entrepreneur. So this model stands up to disrupt an established mature sector with what it really is a modern approach to, I suppose, what is a wholly responsive to changing consumer demands and so forth, as we all get used to different ways of doing things, different innovations coming at a heck of a rate. So when it comes to individual business ownership goals, this is one solution, one one avenue, if you like, this new. And it was achieved simultaneously by Rhiannon while she was rolling out what would really be called transformational organizational change. So she entirely rebuilt the foundations of this 30-year-old company and repositioned James Home Services for this new chapter in its life. So with a background in business management, business consulting, Rhiannon brings a balance of strategic thinking, sharp business acumen, which I've witnessed, and a strong moral compass and an acute focus on honed execution. So she's obviously a very talented lady and uh, strong across all these core organizational verticals, including strategy, operations, risk, finance, HR, and marketing. I wish there were more people with these skill sets around. But her real strength is the ability to bring together a team of people around share goals to achieve a truly remarkable outcome. Rihanna, thank you so much for joining us today. Delighted to have you here. Thank you so much for the opportunity for a chat, Brian. I'm so looking forward to it. Yeah, same here. So let's get into it. I hope um, I don't put you in too much of a corner with some of these questions I've got here. But when did you actually join James Home Services? Can I just ask you that one? Yeah, it's a good place to start. We may as well go back to my, my beginnings in James to sort of yeah. build the picture out. It was right as COVID was originally dawning on the globe and uh, two far North Queensland businessmen were considering purchasing the national network, James Home Services. I was working for one in capacity as a specialist business advisor and I sat down opposite him one day and he said, I'm thinking about buying a national franchise network. I'm going to put you in with the due diligence team. And that was not new territory for me in my previous 
previous role as a business consultant. I had sold businesses. I had conducted due diligence processes. So this was this was normal for me. So I formed part of that team. And after six weeks of a deep dive and a bit of a forensic investigation on the business, uh, the team and I went back to the potential buyers and we said, look, a wonderful network with the great heart and some really fantastic people as business owners. But be very be very aware that it is uh, the foundations are still 30 years old. They haven't been evolved. They haven't they haven't grown. They haven't changed in the last 30 years. What you're buying is something that will require millions of investment to turn it around and to bring it back into 2020 and to make it relevant. So that was three years ago, three and a half years ago. Uh, that was my first experience with James was a due diligence process. And um, those two business owners, you know, once we delivered our due diligence report, one of them in particular looked at the team and said, I love a challenge. Let's do it. I see potential. And he was right because the potential is what was there. And so uh, part of my role evolved from being simply part of the due diligence team to uh, I first started working really as just a projects, just just sort of an on-call projects individual um, within the team. And that quickly evolved into operations manager nationally. Uh, and that very rapidly evolved into CEO. So I've been CEO now for over two years. Well, fantastic. You've done a lot in that time. And it's been challenging time. You know, post-COVID, it's been difficult for everybody around the world in business and some some sectors more than others, depending on the challenges and so forth. So it's been quite a two years then. Goodness me, you've compacted a lot into that, I think. So over that period of time, what are, you know, what have been the biggest challenges that you faced? And perhaps with challenges come outcomes what have been the lessons you've learned personally from that time it must have been really interesting (laughs) yeah that's a great spin on that question it's an easy question to say what are the biggest challenges but I I love the word outcome I am an outcomes motivated individual the challenges started from day one and kept rolling and were relentless in their presentation (laughs) we learned very quickly that there was no no sales pipeline there was no leads pipeline we had a very aged and dated brand that we needed to completely reinvigorate in the marketplace. We had a cohort of business owners who were dedicated to the brand but had been unsupported in the ways that they were really looking for and needing that support. There had been support available but that support was not necessarily responsive to their actual needs. We found also that we needed to re-engage. There was a loss of trust that had occurred over the previous few years um, under previous management and, um, you know, re-engage your cohort of business owners is is hard and you know it would be silly of me not to mention although we're all sick and tired of hearing about it but you know they bought the network in March of 2020 and so whilst we're dealing with business and operational and day-to-day challenges we're also operating in an environment of absolute and complete uncertainty due to COVID you know we're trying to learn what this business model is what this franchise network is and at the same time we've got all of our business owners hitting the most turbulent times that they have ever seen in their businesses and also in their lives and you know needing to guide our business owners through that period of uncertainty in their business and you know really what that meant was you know franchise fee concessions and more and more support and you know basically 24 7 watching what was unfolding in terms of the rules around their operation of their business and then being able to pass that information on you know our commitment to them was (laughs) you can't I can't even describe just how much 
work was involved in caring for our network members in that time. And at the same time, we're also looking at this business model and learning more and more about it, even more than in the due diligence process and going, oh goodness, we have got one hell of a transformation on our hands here. So, you know, one of the really big challenges we faced was that lack of sales pipeline. I mean, anyone in franchising who has any experience in it understands that your two core streams of revenue are franchise fees, but also franchise sales. And if those sales aren't coming in regularly, your cash flow position is not necessarily a happy one. And so that's where we were. That was our biggest challenge. The outcomes of the challenge, well, it caused us to level up in a way I don't think any of us thought that we were going to have to, you know, we did the due diligence and it was thorough. It was a six-week forensic investigation. We knew what we needed to know. We knew enough. But it's a whole new game when you actually get in and when you start really diving deep into the weeds. And the outcome is a levelling up. The outcome is being required to think differently. The outcome was me going to our owners six months in saying, we are going to have to do something wildly different in this industry if we want to make this work. We cannot just simply toe the line and do what everybody else is doing. We're going to have to think differently. We are going to have to take risks that nobody else is taking. We're going to have to go where no one else has gone before. We are going to have to try and think of new ways to approach franchising. And we're going to have to think of how on earth do we actually compete with some behemoths who are our competitors in our I mean, for anybody listening who isn't super aware of James Home Services, in essence, what we provide is small businesses in cleaning and lawn mowing. So, you know, our biggest competitors have literally thousands of businesses that operate in this country and we are small by comparison. We are mighty, but we are small by comparison. And so, you know, working in that landscape is is an incredible challenge. So I would say, you know, the outcome is a levelling up. The outcome was our thinking was challenged and we were were pushed and, you know, we, we challenged every boundary there was and we came up with something very, very different to launch to the marketplace in our subscription model. Yeah, and it took somebody brave, new to the sector, I think, to probably do that because we all get entrenched with, you know, historic case studies and all, all sorts of things. So so there's there's so many lessons here for people who are, you know, like franchisors or franchisees in the early part of their journey or con- contemplating it. To me, the big lesson there is what Rhiannon's making the point is that the support, they did get into a mess, James. I think most people in the sector would know that. And historically, they have a bit of a, a checkered career, I suppose I could say. But the there was that lack of support, which I certainly witnessed when I spent a bit of time with them. It was very hands-off from that point of view. But franchisees aren't meant to be out-and-out entrepreneurs. They need to be led and guided, and that's why they were the franchise. So from that point of view, you know, hats off to the entrepreneur of your two owners, I think, who who, who was really keen on this footpath. And that is the spirit of a true entrepreneur. The challenge <laughs> is what got him. And, it really uh, is. Yeah. And I saw a bit of the Steve Jobs coming in there. Think different. Yeah, you have to. And, you know, you touched earlier on, you know, coming from somebody outside the industry, it's probably worth mentioning that I had not had anything to do with franchising prior to that due diligence process. And then, you know, being placed in as operations manager, the extent of my involvement with franchising was a very minor consulting project with a small franchise network in far North Queensland, you know, looking at their systems and process 
processes. So I understood the model, but I had never been on the inside of one working. I am not a career franchise industry individual. And so my thinking probably challenges a lot of people who are career. In fact, I, you know, we have people who work for our head office team who have worked in the franchising sector for 30 years of their career. And sometimes my thinking is wildly different to them. <laughs> but I think it brings a freshness, you know, right from day one, I really was saying to our owners, we need to think differently. There has to be a hybrid model. You know, we, I don't think that we can just keep doing franchising, you know, little talky-talky marks. We can't just keep doing franchising. It's not going to be enough anymore. You know, consumer markets are changing. Behaviours are changing. Demands are changing. And the needs of brand new business owners are changing. And the need for networks to step up and actually build the skills in a business owner, not just lay foundations and then say, off you go, build a business within our network. The role of franchising really needs to evolve into us building skills, particularly in our space where those, you know, they're small businesses, they're cleaning businesses, they're lawn mowing businesses. And the demographic of individuals coming into our network, for the most part, don't have previous experience in managing a business. And, and you're right, they come to a franchise network for the support. And it hurts my heart to have someone say that our franchisees didn't have that support previously, mm. you know, and I know that it's no secret. We don't hide from it. The past is is what happened. In fact, we, we, we stand in front of it and we say it happened and we're sorry that that happened under somebody else's control, but we're sorry that you went through that. We are going to do this very differently, very differently. It's motivation to do it right. Yeah, this takes me back to a situation some 30 years ago when I worked with Jim Penland, the famous founder of Jim's Mowing or the Jim's Group, and uh, I helped them set up in Western Australia, found a state franchisor and their first 10 franchisees. But Jim's point there was it was all down to support. He would rather do all the background work and optimise their income. And his philosophy was optimise their income and also make sure optimise their rest time, their downtime was something he was passionate about. And in that respect, he's had a fascinating career, of course, as anyone studying him would do, would know. And in fact, if you haven't done, do study him and read a couple of his books. He's an extraordinary individual. But he's also out there and experimenting, doing things differently. And uh, I think that's something to, to take note of. So I suppose the fact you've got these fresh eyes means you come and you see things so differently. And that's almost been pickled as well with regards to COVID. And that's where you hit that sort of uh, midstream, if you like. So what would you say with your, you know, you acknowledge to some degree limited um, over the longer term anyway, franchise experience, what would you say makes a good franchise or honing on some of those points there, Rihanna? I think there's um, two very different verticals that you can go down in answering this question. The first of that is if you're a franchisee, what makes a good franchisor? And the second vertical is what makes a good franchisor in terms of a productive and constructive contributor to the franchising industry in this country? If we go back to the first one, as a franchisee, what makes a good franchisor? It has to be a network that operates with absolute transparency. Mm. When we first took over the network, it operated like most still do in terms of information about joining the network as a franchisee is mostly a secret until you reach out to them and you make a meeting. You know, there's sort of actually limited research that you 
can do online before you want to join a network about what it looks like and what it is. You know, there's more information these days, but three years ago, the common model was that we keep everything a secret and you have to inquire and have a meeting with us and then we'll start to drip feed you information. We flipped that on its head immediately and I said, that doesn't work. We're in 2020. That just doesn't fly. People make decisions based on what they find online. If we can't, if we don't put our information out there online, what research are we enabling people to do on us? Very little. And so people won't inquire with us because they can't get a feel for who we are. They don't get a feel for whether they can trust us. So we put lots of information out there online about our model. Anyone, including any of my competitors, can pretty much find anything out about our business model that they want by going online and doing a little research. And a good franchisor, I think, is a network willing to make no secrets about how they operate because there shouldn't be anything to hide anyway. We often get comments through our onboarding and sales process from people who progress with us. And, you know, as you would expect, they're looking at other franchise network opportunities as well. Nine times out of 10, we get people telling us that the level of transparency and openness that we operate with is entirely refreshing in the industry. People say to us, when we ask you a question, we just get an answer. There's no trickery. There's no doors that we've got to try and get around in order to get to that information. There's no, oh, I'll send that in an email. Oh, I'll think about that. Oh, I've got to come back to you on that. You just answer our question. I think a good franchisor is transparent. I also think that a good franchisor is innovative and is thinking about how do we build a model that genuinely supports our franchisees. Support is absolutely critical. And and I think support has to go beyond just, you know, oh, there's somebody, there's a regional manager that you can talk to if you need a hand. Support has to be so incredibly hands-on, particularly for business owners where this is their first rodeo. In our network, there are several different stages of support that we take a franchisee through. Initial stages, it's, it's really basic stuff, you know. In those first few months, you need leads and you need to be able to quote to win a job and then you need to be able to do the job really well so that you get referrals and reviews so that the whole process starts up. That's it. That's where we focus in the first few months. The second few months is more about let's start managing your business. Let's get on top of your admin. Let's get on top of your cash flow because that then gives you more time on your hands, less stress. You can focus more on your family. That starts to get you to that. I've got the time. And then really the third phase is, okay, you've got a business and it's humming along and you're making a good income and you're quite happy. What now? Now, most people stall here and most franchise network stall here. They don't go to this stage. We do. We will sit down with our teams and we will say, you've got this business. This business is your vehicle to get you wherever you want to go in life. What are your life goals? What are you saving for? What does your retirement look like? What holiday do you want to take? What house do you want to buy? How much time do you want to work? Do you want to manage a team? Do you not want to manage a team? And we fuel the business to be able to deliver on those life goals. Now, I think a lot of franchise networks networks don't bother doing that. I think their philosophy is, you know, maximize the income. That's great because we receive a portion in franchise fees. Happy days, hands off. No, no, we dive in, right? We help them budget. We help them manage money. It's as important for us to understand their personal budgets and their personal financial situation as it is for us to stand, understand their business situation because the two just go hand in hand and you can't, you can't help them in the business unless you understand what the business needs to be producing for them. So honesty and transparency is key. Also be prepared to dive deep. Your franchisor should go above and beyond. Your franchisor should understand how important it is that they genuinely build skills in you that are transferable on whatever is next for you.
you. If we flip and we look at what is a good franchisor in terms of a contributor to industry, that's a totally different question. Mm. I think a good franchisor as a contributor to the industry is someone who first fundamentally understands the importance of this industry, its size and the economic role this industry plays in our country. You know, our industry, franchising, we represent $174 billion generated in our Australia's economy annually. That's massive. And you think about two headline sectors of our economy in iron ore mining and agriculture, both of them generate less. Both of those generate less than franchising. Franchising. So franchising is ginormous. So I think to be a good franchisor, you first have to actually understand the numbers here because we're not just little fish. We are really playing in a very big sea and we are big fish and we have such an important role to play, particularly our network. I see us as we are developing a new cohort of business owners. Our subscription model makes business ownership more affordable and more accessible than it ever has before in this country. What that means is that people who just could never, ever, even think about business ownership before now can. It's now an option to them. What that also means is that those same people don't have experience in business ownership and they need someone to hold their hand and show them the way. That's our role. Our role is not just to set them up in a business, say, here's our system and our processes, away you go do your best. Our role is to actually build their skills as business owners. So I think a good franchisor is someone who gets involved in industry, understands its importance, understands the significance that our industry is as an economic contributor, and then also conversely understands the role that we play in terms of developing business owners in this country. We are the most powerful small business accelerator this country has. Government pour hundreds of millions of dollars into grant programs to accelerate small businesses and start small businesses and support small businesses. And I think they neglect the fact entirely. In fact, I don't think they even think about viewing the franchise network as their biggest asset in terms of small business accelerator in this country. We're an incubator for so many business owners. And that's some remarkable points you made there. I really think that's a, and the analogy there, comparing it with iron ore and those sorts of industries, you know, and mm. agricultural exports. Uh, that's when you start to realise, I mean, it's like we're, um, you know, a massive shoal of fish because they're all small numbers. You know, most franchisees, most franchises are comparatively small businesses, certainly worth under the million dollars and many worth less than a quarter of a million dollars. But you add the gross total and it's enormous. But unfortunately, as you say, I don't want to get on the high horse, but we don't have a voice. I know there are people tirelessly that the Franchise Council of Australia and have over the years spent time, you know, uh, in Canberra, talking to politicians and so forth. But I don't know. I don't know quite why, but they don't grasp the understanding. But I won't go into the politics of it all. <laughs> oh gosh, we, that's a can of worms maybe we don't want to open. We might get a bit divisive. <laughs> no, no, that, that's for another time. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> so, so I thought this might be a good time to actually slip in a little bit about this subscription model because we've mentioned and headlined it. And whilst I'm really enjoying and I'm sure the listeners are digging into a bit of your experience and I, I think it's what you're sharing is so valuable, as I say, not just for emerging franchisors, but for and a vast number of those mature franchise groups that really are plodding along probably 
ignoring subconsciously or intentionally some of these elements that just make such a difference. And unfortunately, to their own disadvantage. But so could you just explain to me that you've given a bit of the background, the evolution, but the subscription model, how would you describe it to us? The easiest way to describe it is instead of paying for your business up front, you pay for it on a subscription. And so it's a weekly commitment and it's a minor weekly commitment as opposed to an upfront sum, you know, to purchase a business in our network is anywhere from, you know, on an upfront basis is anywhere from $26,000 upward. What we found three years ago, particularly in the midst of COVID, you've got to remember that although we don't want to say the word, we were we were trying to build a sales pipeline from scratch in the middle of COVID, the, right. the greatest time <laughs> of uncertainty. <laughs> like I, I think back now and I think, I don't know how I actually did get any sleep at night. <laughs> Yeah. And what we were finding was that people either, I mean, who's got 26K sitting in their back pocket these days? We just don't have it, particularly not our demographic of potential business owners. You know, they've spent their entire lives working for a wage and that wage has just covered cost of living expenses for them. If they've been lucky, they've put enough aside that they've been able to buy a small house and enter the property market, you know, and that's it. They haven't got 26 sitting up their sleeve to be able to buy a business. Financial institutions were tightening in Incredibly, you know, particularly to go and get a loan for 26 to buy a cleaning business. Forget it these days, pretty much forget it, just to be honest. So, you know, we're kind of running out of options in terms of, well, how how do people actually fund this? You know, you can go to friends and family, but friends and family sometimes are the ones that say, oh, you want to buy a franchise? No, no, honey, just get an ABN, register for GST. You'll be right. Advertise on Gumtree. It'll be fine. You'll be right, you know. So friends and family are all, all, not always the first to jump in and help help, particularly when it comes to a franchise. So we were trying to think out the box, you know, there were two fundamental questions that we asked ourselves. Does the market want what we are selling? Any business owner, franchise, non-franchise, any business owner must ask themselves this question every day and must be prepared to answer it brutally, honestly. Does the market want what I'm selling? Now for us, it's a fundamental yes, because we're selling 50% of the quintessential Australian dream. Or in my own backyard, preferably big enough for some cricket stumps at the end of it and be my own boss. That is the typical Aussie dream. Flip the bird to the boss and do it for myself. So we enable people to live out half the Aussie dream. So yeah, people want what we're offering. So because that's a yes, the second question is, well, why on earth aren't we attracting franchisees? Why aren't we selling? And then it's a case of where are the roadblocks and how do we blow them up? Now, the biggest roadblock for us was financial. People either just couldn't scrape together the money or if they had it they didn't want to risk it Mm. if they had it that's all they had and they didn't want to put it all on the table for something that was seen as a high risk and so when you know the market wants what you're selling but the roadblock is a financial situation you flip the tables and you say okay well instead of asking these franchisees to invest in us and trust us let's flip that let's flip the thinking completely the entire industry operates on you pay me a sum of money you invest in our network and then we invest in you. And I went to our owners and I said, let's flip it. We invest in them and then they invest in our network. And so that's what that's then where the, the subscription idea came from was that, well, we've been conditioned as a society to not put money on the table up front anymore. I can even go and buy a dress 
for four equal instalments over the next yeah. four months. You know, I don't even have to pay up front for the clothes that I wear anymore. So if that's the conditioning that our society is receiving as the rest of the world transfers over to a subscription model, then I think as an industry, we're kidding ourselves if we think we're going to be immune to feeling the impacts of that in due course. That's fascinating. That's a wonderful observation. And yeah, you, you're quite right. I think that society as a whole, business particularly, and government has missed the boat from the point of view of the transition with our different generations because talking to some people a couple of weeks ago and they highlighted which really quite surprised me that they're now seeing more activity with prospective franchisees purchasers in their recruitment journey through social media and various channels like messenger and tiktok and you name it there's a myriad out there than they are through even email yeah I just, that does not surprise me at all. We launched subscription model 14 months ago. And within the first four weeks of launching that model, we halved the average age of our inquirer. Wow. And that's because we made it accessible. That's because we made a model that was relevant to my generation of individuals. And, you know, what we did was we took it from being focused on a cohort of people in their 50s who were looking for something to do between corporate and retirement, you know, a stopgap, if you like. And we shifted the bar right back down to this is now a way for people in their 30s to set themselves up. And when you get someone in their 30s, we can teach them money management and finances. We teach them marketing. We teach them sales techniques. We teach them budgeting. We teach them about how to try and afford a house in five years time based on what your business can do for you. What an incredible privilege we have to be able to actually contribute to the future of these individuals. I mean, you know, it's not less important than shaping and contributing to the future of of older individuals as well. But that statistic that, you know, four weeks in and we have the average age of inquirer, I hypothesized that's what we would see, but I still am in a little bit of disbelief that it was as quick as it was. And, you know, I have heard, you know, I've attended a lot of industry conferences. I get involved and I go along to a lot of different things and and a lot of different learning opportunities. And my background, actually, my tertiary background is marketing and law but marketing as a place in my heart I'm a bit of a creative and I love marketing then it's all psychology which is fascinating to dive into but I can't I've lost count of how many times I've been listening to a presentation by someone from a marketing team who's saying to franchisors and the topic is how to generate franchise inquiry leads and this head of marketing for national franchise in this country is saying don't worry about Facebook it's useless no a third of my leads come from Facebook these days and I get a really good conversion rate on those. My conversion rate on Facebook is not much lower than my conversion rate on a dedicated lead generation platform for franchise sales. So social media is just so important. And if there are any emerging franchisors listening and looking for like a little bit of a tip, maybe this is the one thing to take away. Don't discredit social media networks. And it's hard not to do that because it takes a long time to crack them. It took us 12 months, 18 months to actually crack the code on how to make social media networks and we threw a lot of money in it at that time and we didn't see a lot of outcomes stick at it and be really persistent and be absolutely tenacious in your pursuit of data and intelligence and information about what it takes to make your marketing campaigns work on social media because when you crack that code you will be damn grateful that you stuck at it for 18 months and it will pay off dividends so yeah that's a, a big oh, look, yes. look, I think there's a few people who 
would be nodding their head and sharing that knowledge with you. But from the point of view of most of us, and I was a skeptic, I have to say, because we'd spent time promoting through Facebook and so forth quite some years ago now. But it's such a different story. And and the way you do it is so different to the way that most people do it. It's a different type of post. You, It's a different language you're talking, et cetera, et cetera. So you've obviously, I love that, cracking the code. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I refer to social media as cracking the code. And it's a totally different language. You're talking to very different people on social media and you're talking to them very early in their consideration process, right? Mm. And the way that we target people on social media in our network is actually to assume that they're literally just scrolling and they've never heard of us before. Now, you don't go in with a sales message at that point. You go in with something pretty light, pretty pretty open, pretty like, you know, future state, where do you want to be in five years, but like really lighthearted, like we use a lot of humour. And then we also, we also use a lot of kind of like when we're retargeting and we know that they've seen us a few times now and they're engaging, we actually kind of assume that they're sceptics because so many young people are sceptics franchising. And a strategy that we've really found quite effective in the last sort of six months is actually to combat that straight on and and to call it. And in our social media advertising, it really is like, we know you're watching us, but we know you don't trust us. So here's some information that might turn that around. We're going to challenge your thinking on that today. Like we try to get a little bit sassy with it. Yeah, it's a very different space. It's a totally different language. You know, the strategy we use on social media is like chalk and cheese to the strategy we use on other platforms. You cannot just have one, you can't have one message. We have a hundred messages. Yeah, that's absorbing. Goodness. I'm more and more impressed with what you've done in your couple of years. So I suppose moving on from that, and I'm sure there'll be lots of questions about the subscription model from people. I, I mean, I know you do it with relatively small franchises. I, I don't see why you can't do it with larger ones. You just got to hit the right formula and of course the the key i suppose and this would be one of the major considerations that you made was in investing in your franchisees it means you need that working capital to carry them forward so literally you're providing finance for a number of years until you get your payback so uh, but what i see there and i see in some of the other well-established and uh, groups that have got a community basis amongst them you know the the pool works and the hire hub is they build long long long-term relationships with their franchisees and that's if you're getting people in young in their 30s as opposed to their 50s what's the potential you know yeah absolutely that's why i'm so excited about having a younger cohort now being represented in our in our mix in our network because it does breed that potential for a very long-term relationship and that's exciting because we can help build skills and then we can we can actually see them implement those and we can see people grow and individuals grow and my my passion has always been in helping people grow small businesses that's my my heart has always been in small business right back from when I was 20 managing a small business in my hometown I realized when I took on that role that small business management was my space and now I get to wake up every morning and with what I do in my day job I get to help tens and tens of small business owners it's such a privilege to do what I do do you see uh, I don't know your experience do you have many multi-unit franchisees is that model function within your model yeah we often have franchisees come in and offer one service to start and then they add other services so yeah essentially that's what they're doing they're operating in the same geographic area um but then what they're doing is they're adding the other services into their model we have quite a number of franchisees doing that and the more we in the last few months we've really noticed a significant increase in the sort of capabilities of our potential franchisees coming through and we're genuinely getting some individuals who are showing a lot more initiative and a lot more previous experience and really seeing the opportunity in the market the opportunity in home services is is exponential right now and and I think there are a lot of people starting to actually see that and 
and seeing value in an accelerated startup in the space that a franchise network offers. And so they come in and they start with an interior cleaning business, but right from day one, their business plan is that they're going to offer other services. You know, I want to get six months in, build X revenue, cash flow solid, employ two people, and then I'm going to move on and we're going to do the next service. And that that's their business plan. And I think we're going to see that increasing as our network continues to mature in our new approach. I think we're going to see that continuing. Yeah, look, I think with your model, you've got a blueprint for just creating entrepreneurs, really. And the fabulous thing is you're getting to know them, trust each other, understand their capabilities as they go through that progression. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose a bit of an obvious question (laughs) after our conversation now, but I will just pop it to you before we start sort of winding up. But do you think the franchising model needs innovating? There's a question I needn't ask you. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It is a very big, resounding, loud yes from me. I think everything needs innovating. I think if you're standing still right now, in your business, in relative terms, you are going backwards Mm. because someone else is taking those next steps and you're not. I, you know, in the last three years, there have been a lot of people who have said to me, you know, the language change fatigue, read, we need to slow down. The network is tired. Our franchisees are tired. Like, you know, every month there's something new. And, you know, when I say that we transform this network, I don't mean we tweaked around the edges. I mean, there is nothing to our franchise that looks like it did three years ago. However, I really genuinely believe that change fatigue is something we need to eliminate from our language. And instead of just using it as a rationalization for not moving forward, we need to use it as motivation to manage change better. Because we used to think about change as a project. Someone would be brought in to do a job. You know, it would be a six month implementation process after 12 months of project design. You know, it it used to be structured. Honestly, change is every single day and innovation in this network is every single day. There's almost not a day that goes by that I'm not saying the words to one of my head office team. Well, everything's on the table. If that's your feedback that the network's telling us, well, we throw that out the window and we go with a new idea. And it's it's it has to be your business as usual. I think as an industry, you know, franchising is one of the simplest business models, but the complexity is wild. It's simple if you get it right. And it can be an absolute fireball if you don't understand how complex the simplicity of the model actually is. Mm. It's powerful. It's one of the most powerful business models that exist in the world, if not the most powerful business structure. The leverage you can get out of a franchise network probably is unrivaled, actually. Does it need innovating yet? Because as a model, franchisors have been rolling out the same concept for the last hundred years. You set up a business and then you set up another business and you set up another business and you you charge fees in exchange for it. Like, yeah, we need to think about it differently. You know, we need to flip some tables. We need to throw some ideas out the window. We need to come up with subscription models. We need to come up with other ways of doing it. We need to address the demands of our current market. And we need to think about how our market is changing. You know, I don't believe that we're immune to people not wanting to put money on the table and invest up front. I think our larger networks at the moment who think that they're immune from that because, you know, they'll sit there and they say, yeah, but we genuinely offer real value, you know, so you've got to value that value. Yeah, but the market is going to tell you in another decade's time that sure, there's value there, but they don't want to pay for it up front. So now you're going to have to come up with a creative way to get people in and to make people understand that value. So yeah, innovation is absolutely necessary and it's not a project. It's not change. It's not someone being brought in. It's not something that has an end date. Innovation must be our business as usual.
I love that. Yeah, so it's a, it's a constant. It's as simple as that. It's just part of what you do. And, and yeah, you've got to remove the excuses because it's very easy, you know, as you say, to, to raise up various issues and say we need time to stabilise. So I suppose what I've, what I've gathered for, for our listeners to summarise a few things there, to, you know, from what Rhiannon learned as a fresh pair of eyes into the sector was that you know, this business of transparency, I think there's a lot of space for increasing that amongst everybody. And this support, both, you know, Prue that I work with has always been her passion and the, the examples we look at, the case studies, the people who really do it well and successfully support is the foundation of what they do with their franchisees. And what Rhiannon's saying is education, talking about teaching about budgets, about investments and so forth. So it's taking them to another level and then you're forming a marriage. You know, you are, you have got that, that bond. So don't, don't be afraid to dive deep, I suppose. And, uh, and have no illusions. You know, this is not straightforward. It's not just a matter of, you know, getting the jigsaw out and putting the right pieces in the right places. You've got to actually get stuck into it. But I do think that it would pay for everybody to explore this subscription model in more detail. Once you get the the understanding of it, I think it's not difficult to appreciate how that can be done. There's lots of opportunities. And I know that Rhiannon does, despite how much time she has to spare, I'm sure, which is next to none, that I've seen a number of Franchise Council Australia events. And I know I keep plugging it, but, you know, the fresher you are in franchising or contemplating it, the deeper you should dive into the Franchise Council because mixing with people like Rhiannon on a regular basis and many other mature and fascinating new entrants in the marketplace, you learn so much. It's an osmosis, really. So, um, but I think the, one of the other biggest things is, you know, you've got to stimulate the market. You've got to be patient. And the fact that don't by any means dismiss this younger cohort because that's what our future is built on. And they're, they're becoming the vast majority of the people we're communicating with, you know, as the, as the population ages. So Rhiannon, anything you'd like to add, add as a footnote before we... Re- unfortunately have to wind up yeah oh look think nothing hugely specific but I, and I think maybe maybe a conversation for another day but I think that so much of what we've talked about really can be kind of summarized in one simple thing and that is that franchising offers value that you just can't get by going and starting a business on your own you know and the power that brings to a new business owner there are lots of people and potentially some of your listeners who are a little bit skeptical of the franchising sector who maybe don't have the trust in the sector that we as a sector would like to think that we can give to people you know I did some back of the envelope sums the other day and in the first 12 months of one of our franchisees being in our network they receive over a hundred thousand dollars worth of value from us you know and it's simple things right like when you start with franchise you have to go and set up your own brand you don't have to go set up your own website and you don't have to go and set up your own marketing campaigns on social media and look you know, you can go and do all of that as a small business owner and you can go and you can get your Wix website and you can go and just, you know, do a sponsored post on Facebook. But what you get access to when you join a franchise network is the best web developers because I can afford the best web developers. And you get you get someone running a social media campaign in your area who is one of the best digital campaign agencies in this country because I can afford that because I'm representing so many small businesses. And, and my back of the envelope sums were that a small business 
business owner coming into our network, they pay us $125 a week as a subscription fee. We provide their equipment, we get them started, that's all their training, and then they pay franchise fees on top of that. But for that, for those two small numbers, even just in the first year alone, they're receiving over $100,000 worth of value. That's a conversation we need to be having with government to say, hey, you guys don't recognize our value. Let's put a number to it. We've been now talking for a decade about valuing our natural capital. And that's a conversation that's evolving rapidly. And that's what has finally gotten government to actually stand up and be party to the environment conversation, putting a number on it. If that's what it takes, we need to learn from the sector and we need to start putting a number on the value of franchising industry as a business accelerator and as an incubator for small businesses and as a sector that builds the skills of our next generation of business owners in this country. Well, look, if you're like me, your ears are stuck to the headphones and you're screaming for more. But unfortunately, we have to wind up. So you've been listening to Rhiannon Simcox from James Home Services. And uh, the topic today has been the subscription model of Franchise First. So look, Rhiannon, thank you so much. I've certainly enjoyed it. Yes, we will make a date for another conversation. because Fabulous. I love that. I look forward to that and I'll manage to leverage a bit of your time at some stage. So thank you very much for coming and joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you everyone for listening. As always, any feedback, thoughts, whatever, love it and share these with anyone else that you think may be interested in our podcasts where I think this is probably somewhere up around the 155 or something, I think. So there's a fair library there we've got to dig into it. So Rihanna, thanks very much again. I'll leave you off to your day of innovation and change and uh, look forward to catching up with you again. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Signing off. See you next time. Bye.